Good to see everyone this morning. I ask you if you have your Bibles to turn to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15, we'll be looking at verses 22 through 35 this morning. Acts chapter 15, verses 22 through 35. It's a special day in the life of our church already. You've heard from Pastor Stephen. Our month of impact kicks off today. And let me encourage you again, if, if you do not have a life group, they will be meeting directly or immediately after this service all over our buildings here. And we would love for you to join in. It'll be through those life groups that that month of impact will uh, be pushed through and understood. And you'll be studying and working together and, and seeing how you can make an impact around about, uh, with those who maybe far from God, but close to you in your life. And so we would encourage you to do that. We're excited about what the Lord is going to do this month. This month will end, uh, we get toward the end of this month with our Reach Sunday, where we'll gather together for the purpose of discussing what it means to reach our neighbors and the nations. And we'll have Dr. Paul Chitwood, the president of the International Mission Board, here with us this year. We also had a great weekend, lots of stuff, as I said, going on. Our students met all weekend, and Josh and Brittany, they made it this morning. See, so all survived so far, so we're thankful for that. And uh, just exciting to hear about what the Lord did in our students in their fall retreat in their life. This is also a big day in the life of our church, uh, a kind of a milestone day. 30 years ago today, Daryl Hopkins started working here at Taylor's First Baptist. Daryl, you're back there. Why don't you stand up and wave at everybody? You don't have to do anything but stand up and wave. <laughs> Miss D, stand up with him. There they go. We'll be recognizing them in every service. But Daryl's been here 30 years. I'm not going to tell you, Daryl. But 1993 is when I graduated from high school, brother. And... Uh, <laughs> So since the late 1900s, Daryl has been here working in our rec ministry. And Daryl, I just want to say thank you so much on behalf of the church for 30 years. Uh, 30 years is special anytime anymore, right? And the, the way life just seemingly goes by so fast. But so thankful for you two. Thankful to be able to serve here alongside you in these last few years. And we appreciate that. October 1st, 1993. Seems like yesterday. Good. Thankful for Daryl and Dean. We'll be recognizing them today, each service. We want to turn in God's Word, as I said. Uh, Daryl, you probably heard many sermons here, and this is another one. Um, in fact, this is part two, uh, if you will, from last week in some ways. And so last week we discussed in Acts chapter 15, the end of the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas and how they returned to Antioch rejoicing in what the Lord has done. And yet, even there in chapter 15, a sharp controversy arises. Even after they're rejoicing, after they're celebrating and coming through, a sharp controversy arises there in, verse, in chapter 15 that we see. This controversy has to do with how the, the Paul and Barnabas had taken the gospel to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles had believed. And so what will we do with them? And understand, the controversy wasn't about whether or not the Gentiles could hear the gospel and believe. That wasn't what it was about. The controversy was about what do we do with them when they do profess belief? And so some had come down to say, we have to make them Jews. They have to take the act of circumcision. They have to put themselves under, to, under the law. And this, of course, was a burden to be added to them. So Paul and Barnabas began to argue with them. Uh, and and it even says argue sharply, given some sense of what, we can't do this. We can't add this burden to them. 
And so much so that they decided to take this question to the church in Jerusalem, to the apostles and to the elders, and to discuss it with them, to come up with a suitable answer. Because as the gospel has been sent out, the last thing we want to do, for Paul and Barnabas especially, the last thing they wanted to do was put handcuffs on the gospel itself. As if to say, it's not just believing in Jesus, it's, it's also adding these other things to it before you can walk with him by faith. And so as we discussed last week, some like to make the formula into Jesus plus something else equals salvation. And while we read the scriptures and we discussed it, we understood, I believe, hopefully, looking through Acts, that it's Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. It's simply trusting and believing in him. And so that was the answer they came to in Jerusalem. That was the answer that they came to there as they gathered together as the church in Jerusalem to discuss this issue and to push it forward. And we saw that last week. And now what we will do is we look to Acts 15, verse 22 and following. We're going to deal with the, the decision that has been made. I want to simply make some observations from it. So let's read together Acts 15, verse 22 through verse 35. It said this, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we've heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same thing by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word today. Help us as we look to your word to, to learn from it, to grow from it. Father, help us to trust Jesus and Jesus alone for all things. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. As I said, as we consider this passage, I just want us to examine it in some way so we can learn from it. Sometimes when you're preaching, uh, the, the points of the text just kind of fly out of there. And, and many people will, will tell you when you're in preaching class to, to make your points you know, imperatives. You be telling people what to do when you make those points. Well, as some of y'all who have heard me preach quite often know, I don't all, always follow that model. And today is not 
going to be a day like that. Today, we're just simply wanting to observe what happens in this passage and maybe learn from it. See what these leaders at the church at Jerusalem did, how they responded, and, and, and what was the result of that response. And that way, maybe we can learn some things ourselves in our own regular walk with the Lord. And so what I want to notice first is just we'll see the action that was taken here by the leaders at the church of Jerusalem. In verse 22, it says, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders. This phrase, it seemed good, will appear another time down in verse 28. It seemed good down in verse 28. It has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. We're talking about here decision-making, really. The idea that it has seemed good or it seemed good gives some sense of that the apostles and the elders have come to a consensus together. Now the question comes and arises as, as uh, it has come through the church in Antioch about the Gentiles as we've discussed and, and what to do with them. Should they take circumcision? Should they become Jewish by, by their very claim here in and of themselves? And, and this question was not a small question. It was a major question as to the advancement of the gospel. And so now a decision has to be made. How will we deal with this? And so what we notice here in our passage is that God does not just open up the heavens here and answer the question to the disciples, to the apostles, and to the elders. He doesn't just come down and say, here's what you are to do. I mean, it may seem fitting. We've seen God act in that way. We've seen him do things in that way in the text. But in this passage, it's a different kind of decision-making process that's going on. Not only does God not just come down and announce it, here's how you're to handle this, he also, we also see that the, the apostles and the elders in the church don't just sit there and wait for him to speak. Oftentimes, that's kind of how we get in our decision-making process, right? We, we want God to write it in the clouds for us. We want him to do it. And we don't make decisions because we're sitting here just saying, I'm going to wait on the Lord to give me an answer in some way. And so oftentimes we get bound up, just like we see in the text, we get bound up in the decision-making processes of life. But what we know here when we come to our passage, I think it gives us a, a way forward in decision-making for ourselves. I mean, because they model it here. God has not left himself in any way without a witness. While they're waiting on God to speak, what we know is that God has already spoken. In fact, in Acts chapter 15, it tells us that. He revealed himself to Peter in verse 7. Whenever Peter was, was asked this question of, of, of the Gentiles and whether they should take circumcision, Peter goes back and says, God revealed himself to me back in chapter 10 of Acts and showed that all things are clean and the gospel therefore goes to all people. God has revealed himself to Peter. But not only that, when James steps up back in chapter, the beginning of chapter 15, he quotes Amos. And as we discussed last week, he's quoting Amos, not, not some passage in Scripture that is, that is the front and center passage, but one that's deep down in the minor prophets and says the gospel goes to the Gentiles. And we see it. So God's word has spoken. God has spoken in his word. He has not left himself without a, a witness. Decisions that we have to make in our life should first and foremost go back to God's word, his revelation. 
If we're coming up with a decision to be made, if, if we need to know what is right and good, the first place we turn, like the apostles and the elders, was to God's revelation, his word. The good thing is for us is that he's given us his word completely here in the scriptures. He's not held anything back that we need for life and salvation. He's not held anything back that we're, that we're looking for. or He's not held us back in any way with what he has given us. He's shown us in his word exactly what he would like for us to do. And now you say, Josh, he hasn't shown me where I'm supposed to go in my next job. Or he hasn't shown me where I'm supposed to do in my next school choice or whatever it may be. Maybe he hasn't shown us what I'm supposed to do in this situation or that. But what he has shown us is in his word is enough for us to understand what his will is for us. In fact, God's will is for us to be obedient to him. He says, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. God's will is for us to pursue obedience. And so first and foremost, in every decision we make, we have to come to the understanding of what is God's revealed word and is this right with God's word? Is this follow along in God's word? Or let's think of it in the negative. Is this decision against God's word? Has God spoken clearly against this? Well, obviously, here, when they come to this passage, God has spoken clearly for the Gentiles, and God has spoken clearly for us in many things. And so God has not left himself without a witness here. First decision should go back to the word. Look down at verse 28 as well. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. God has not left us without his spirit. God has not left us without his word. God has not left us without his spirit. Here, the the word is, is not only given to us, but also the spirit is within us testifying to that word. When we read the book of Acts, we see how the spirit has worked over and over and over and over again to guide the people, to give them what they need. Not only the power, but the wisdom, the direction, and the place. When we're making decisions in life, we look to God's word and we trust the spirit that is dwelling within us as believers. We trust the spirit that's dwelling within us. God has not left us without his word. God has not left us without his witness in us through the spirit. Now, what does this mean and how does it work? Obviously, as Paul would say, we keep in step with the spirit. So therefore, we pray, we seek God's face through his word, trusting in his spirit when we make decisions. We trust in what he, has, what he has given us, the testimony within us. We trust in the spirit that dwells within us if we are believers. God has not left us without his spirit, his witness. God has not left us without other mature believers either. We don't make decisions always on our own, right? We're not the wisest or the smartest in all things. So God has not left us without his word. God has not left us without the witness of the spirit. God has not left us without each other. Other mature believers. Now understand, I'm putting mature believers. I'm qualifying that and I'm leaving that up to your judgment. But you know who I'm talking about. You know those who have gone on before you. You know those who have dealt with these similar situations. In fact, the scriptures tell us all the time, like 2 Corinthians, that we comfort others because God has comforted us. There are those who have gone through the very same things we are going through in our life and have come out on the other side with testimony and favor and goodness. And it's right for us to go and ask their opinion, to go and seek wisdom from them. That's exactly what we see in our passage. They went to the word, they trusted and leaned upon the spirit that was witnessing within them, and they went to each other. 
They went to the apostles, the elders, the leaders. Let's see what we are to do. Let's consider these things together. To make decisions in this way takes humility. It takes humility to know that we are not always right. That is a shocker to some of us. It blows our mind to think that we don't always know what's best. We're not always confident, can't always be confident in our own decision making. So therefore, God has shown us a process here in Acts 15. We look to his word, we pray and trust in his spirit, and we ask other mature believers what they believe or what they understand. And here, that's exactly what we see laid out. All must be done with an attitude of prayer and faith. When we look to this passage, we recognize the leadership of James. We discussed it last week, the half-brother of Jesus who has risen to the place of the lead pastor or elder of the church in Jerusalem and the author of his book, uh, James, here at the end of the New Testament. This passage in, in James, I quote quite often myself. I mean, there's many times that we need discernment and we need wisdom in life, right? Many things that come up where we need to know what God would have us to do. And so James says it like this. In, ja in James chapter 1, verse 5, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. What an incredible statement. If you're looking for wisdom in your life, ask God. He gives generously. And he doesn't do it questioning like, you big dummy, right? It's not what he says. He does it without reproach. He doesn't even say, you don't need, why are you asking me this? You should already know. He says, you pray, ask God. He gives wisdom without reproach. But notice what he says next. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. How often are we skeptical in our own decision-making processes? Well, if you're making your decisions in life based upon your own wisdom and your own understanding, not leaning and trusting in the revealed will of God, not looking to the spirit that dwells within all believers testifying to his word in our heart and in our life, and not asking around with other mature believers in what it is they believe would be the right course of action forward. If you're trying to make decisions without that process in place, quite often you will doubt. Quite often you will be pushed around by the way, like the waves of the sea, and maybe rightfully so. But what's, what he's saying here in James is that when we go to the Lord, we seek wisdom. The Lord gives it without reproach. Don't doubt. Pursue him. Follow after him. Follow after him. And listen, James is so serious about this. Listen to verse 7. For that person, the one who doubts and does not trust the guidance of the Lord, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Anything from the Lord. For he is double-minded and unstable in all his ways. Sometimes our double-mindedness and instability is often seen most in our decision-making process. And in Acts chapter 15, I think they give us a clear way that we can work through God's word with his spirit in concert with other believers to make the right decisions in our life. This should be put in practice every day for us. And at the end of it, we pray and say, God, what is it you would have us to do? And we do what seems good. 
When that process is in place, we do what seems good, right? That's what you see here in Acts 15. It seemed good to us. It seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit. And as they do that, what seemed good to them to bring this letter forward? The Lord who's not hiding from us. When we stay in his word, we trust in his Holy Spirit witness, we seek advice from other believers, and we do what seems good. Then what seemed good to these leaders in the church of Jerusalem was to send a letter. So let's look now at that letter and its contents. They'd come to the decision to send a letter and to, to encourage them. Let's look at that letter, really four parts to this letter. First, they disassociated themselves with the circumcision party. In verse 24, as they're writing to the church at Antioch, it says, since we've heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. The first and foremost thing that the church leaders wanted to do was let them know that these men who had come to you had gone to you without authorization and without our teachings in hand. We would have never authorized what they said. We would have never approved of that. This is not the message of God's word, and this is not the message of his people. What has come to you is troubling to us, they're saying, and we are disassociating ourselves with them, rightfully so. For ultimately what these apostles and leaders want to say is that we take no part in false teaching. We clearly take no part in, in what's error or, or wrong in theology. We take no part in false teaching. In fact, Paul says this over and over again. Do not associate yourselves with those who are false among you, he says. Do not associate yourselves with those who are sexually immoral. We'll get to that in this letter. With those who are prideful or arrogant, do not associate with them. And so the very first thing we, they must do is separate themselves from the false teachers that had come into their presence. Those are not our people. In our life, we have to do the same thing. Oftentimes, we have to be clear on what we believe. And being clear on what we believe is to state that's not it. When we hear it in other places, they separated themselves from the false teachers that had come before. And then the second part of the letter, they commended Judas and Silas as having their full approval and support. These false teachers had come into Antioch, right, and, and raised up error and, and, and brought something that was wrong that would hinder the gospel and the advancement of the gospel. But now some other brothers are coming down with Paul and Barnabas, Judas and Silas. And what they wanted to say is these brothers, these are the ones we want you to listen to. These are the ones we approve of. If we disassociate ourselves with them, these are the ones we associate ourselves with. Judas and Silas, and, and notice their qualifications. I love their qualifications. They've gone out from us. They've troubled you. Those are unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. It has seemed good to us, again, seemed good to us, having come to one accord to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. What are the qualifications for Judas and Silas other than they've risked their lives for them? You see, in the book of Revelation, I, I love that passage where it discusses how the devil will be defeated, right? Revelation chapter 12, the devil will be defeated in three ways. One, through the blood of Jesus Christ, the testimony of the saints, 
and from those who are not afraid to die. The devil will be defeated from the blood of Christ, the testimony of the saints, and from those who are not afraid to die. Ultimately, this testimony that they have risked their lives for Jesus testifies that they believe this with everything they have. Who risked their lives for a lie? Who risked their lives for a question? Who risked their lives for anything that, that may be true or, or maybe not be true? These are men, he's saying, that firmly believe everything we preach and we teach. So much so that they're willing to risk their lives for Christ Jesus, and they have. And they have. They've risked their lives here because ultimately they know life will be given to them eternally forever in glory in heaven. So what's risked here is no risk there at all. They're confident in the word. So confident they're willing to give their life for it. So he sends these two. their full approval and support. Both the, the letter that they gave and the word of their testimony comes. Comes. In other words, they're saying, don't believe everything you hear. Confirm it. Confirm everything you hear through faithful men and women who will teach you. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. The third part. They want to add no burden beyond this. Now, that's a, a, a question. This is the meat of the letter, right? They disassociate themselves with those who come before. They join themselves up with Judas and Silas. Say, these are the ones you listen to. And now the meat and heart of it. As they come here, they say in verse 20, 28, For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. Now, I know it may seem weird. No burden but. No burden but this. Now, why did they put it this way? And really then, you start to read, what are these requirements? You're like, whoa, that's kind of strange. They go right along with previously when James had said this, don't, and back in verse 20, the requirements are these, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. So we put no greater burden on you than these things. Abstain from what's been sacrificed to idols, blood, what's been strangled, Sexual morality. And now, for us, it's like, whoa, that's kind of strange. You know, these are the burdens you're adding on to them. So, so you got to kind of figure out why is this grouping given? If this is so important for, for these leaders, and, and James has made this point in the church, and he's sending this off, why is it that they group these things together? Well, if you read any commentary on this, you'll find different reasons for this all across the board. Many people are trying to figure out why these four or sometimes put them together, sexual morality, things sacrificed to idols, and then strangled, things that are strangled, and therefore the blood still remains in them. Why is it three or is it four? What are they? And why are they here? Why are they here? It seems so foreign to our ears. So let's try to understand that. There's, there's four main views here, and I'm just going to run through these quickly. You don't have to write them down. Don't worry about that. One, these are simple, simply moral requirements. These are, what, these are things that are most offensive to the Jews. So if we let Gentiles in, then we need to put these on there because we want, these are just simply moral requirements. But, but really, that doesn't answer enough and adds to more questions. Why these? Where did these come from? And what is this all about? The others believe, some others offer that these are the strangers in a strange land argument. 
In other words, you are going to be Gentiles living in a foreign land, so therefore do this. This is Leviticus 17 and 18, by the way. We're going through Leviticus on Wednesday night. We'll be there soon if you want to find out more about that. But really the point in Leviticus 17 and 18 is that we are a people who will be living in a foreign land, and therefore we must live differently from those who dwell there. And so if you're a Gentile, you're going to be now a believer in Christ living in a foreign place that have foreign things that do not go with God or who he is, so therefore you must live differently. You must live differently. But I don't think he's just simply referring to things like Leviticus 17 and 18 here. Or the Noah laws or Noadic laws here. The Noadic laws go past Moses and Sinai all the way back to Noah. Because really at Noah in Genesis chapter 9, the Lord had to recreate everything, right? So it all was awful. The flood came. Noah and his family were the only ones left. And the Lord gave commandments again. And in Genesis 9, he gave seven commandments. And, and so the argument is Gentiles go all the way back to Noah. So we have to uphold this. But really, why is there only three or four here and not all seven? My point is, those three views don't quite answer exactly what it is. Some parts of them may be true. I do believe they're strangers in a strange land. I do believe these are moral arguments. And I do believe there's obligations to keep these things as God has created us and made us. But I think there's a better understanding. I think the point of this letter is for those who've received faith as Gentiles to guard their worship, to guard their worship. In other words, all of these practices we see here are found in pagan temple worship practices. These Gentiles have come out of that. They've grown up in those worship practices. They live in places where they're done. And so do not partake of things sacrificed to idols. Don't have anything to do with idols or things that are strangled. Therefore, the blood remains within them. Promises or, or statements made in Leviticus and in the Old Testament, we can't have anything to do with blood in that way. So do not do that. But these are things that happened in pagan worship practices, or even sexual morality. There were pagan worship practices where sexual morality was a part, an act of the worship itself. And so I think what's happening here is that the leadership in Jerusalem, as they're speaking to the Gentiles, they're saying to them, look, there's no great burden on you to become a Jew. You don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to come under the law in the same way as the Jews have been under the law. But what you do have to do is worship the one true and living God in a way that honors him and glorifies him perfectly. That's what you do have to do. There's an exclusivity or even as we understand in the Old Testament, a jealousy of God in worship. Nothing else is worthy. Do not give your worship to anything or anybody or anywhere else. And so these practices that are tied with pagan worship do not partake in them at all. It goes back there to verse 21. For from ancient generations, Moses had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. There is a way for you to worship, and there is a way for you not to worship. This letter, I believe he's saying to them, we, we had no burden but this. Worship God alone. Worship him alone. And don't get caught up in the practices 
the practices of, of pagan worship, and even sometimes in our own sensibilities, we, we get caught up in those practices when we don't realize what they mean or what they're doing. Stay away from them. Stay away from them. The Gentiles must worship the one true and living God, for he is jealous of that worship, and he alone is worthy. Now, it's hard for us sometimes. It shouldn't be, but it is. Maybe we see it more clearly in other places in the world where South Asia that we talk about so often where there's 330 million gods that are worshipped in South Asia. 330 million. And so oftentimes, even when we present Jesus or we offer up God of the Bible, the Scriptures, the one true and living God, quite often they'll take that Jesus or that God of Scripture and they'll just simply add him to the 330 million that they already have. What they're saying is that's not possible. That's not possible. You must worship him and worship him alone, for he alone is worthy of your worship. And that is where the Christian life begins. Ultimately, that's what he's saying. This is not a burden to you. This is what you've been called out for. This is what you've been created for. This is your very purpose. So as you hear the name of Christ and you believe in him, worship him and worship him alone. Give your life to worshiping God. This is where it begins. We must get our worship right. That's what they're saying in this letter, I believe. Put God first. Oftentimes, we must admit in our own selves, while we don't profess to have 330 million gods around us that we can bow down to, quite often, we put this, that, and everything else in the place where God needs to be in our life. And if we don't get the worship right, what we know as believers is we do not flourish in life. We do not flourish in these things. Notice the conclusion, the fourth part of this letter. If you do these things, if you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. That language here is you will flourish. If you put the worship right, get that where it needs to be in your life, then then you'll find happiness, then you'll find satisfaction, then you'll find joy, and all of those things are a combination that comes together for us to flourish in life. That does not mean that everything will be perfect or easy. What it does mean is that everything flows back from God and gives meaning to it and has purpose. And so when we come here, he's saying, do not get the worship wrong. God has saved you. Worship him alone. Jesus puts it this way when he's teaching his disciples. Seek you. Seek First, the kingdom of God, and everything else will be added to you. Seek that first, and everything else will be added. My friends, that's not a burden. That's a joy. These are not burdens that they're adding to them. These are restraints, barriers from keeping us to falling into dissatisfaction and unfaithfulness. This is a joy for us to find the very thing we were created for. And what's the response? The response, as I said, is flourishing in worship. Flourishing in worship is not a feeling. It's a posture. And it's not a posture of our outward body. It's a posture of our heart. 
It's where is our joy found? When we humble ourselves and submit ourselves to the Lord to flourish in worship is to use the word Jesus uses in John 15, abide in me. To abide in him is to trust him in all things, to depend upon him for life and salvation, to look to him for all your joy and satisfaction, to recognize that the meaning you have in life has been granted to you only in Christ, and he's the only one that can satisfy you. Abide in him. The encouragement here from the elders and the apostles is like, stay there. Don't get away from Jesus. Don't move away from him. Stay there. Live and abide in him. It's like we discussed from Psalm 96 earlier as we read. When our worship is right, rejoicing comes, right? Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy. When worship is right, joy is found. And that's exactly what we see here in verses 30 through 35 at the end of this. They heard the letter, they read it together, and they rejoiced. They rejoiced. They rejoiced. Why? Because when worship is right, joy is found. No burden added. Life is given to us in Christ. We worship him. We worship him alone. As we're thinking about our month of impact, looking at Psalm 96 in our life groups, when we worship God rightly, joy comes to us. And what happens then? Witness flows out. You see, all of this in Acts 15 is about proclaiming and sharing the gospel to the ends of the earth. The efforts of those men who came to Antioch was to stop the gospel from going deep into the heart of the Gentile territory. We got to stop it from advancing too far. We got to hold on to it as if it is ours instead of releasing it to do the work that God had sent the gospel to do, change hearts and lives in the deepest and darkest places of this world. They tried to stop it. But when we worship rightly, there's no stopping the advancement of the gospel. Worship the Lord. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established and it shall never be moved. It shall never be moved. When we worship right, flourishing comes. Witness follows. Rejoicing. Rejoicing is the tenor of our life and our heart. And then what does it say next? And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace. There was peace at the end of chapter 14, dissension all through 15. God in his grace had helped them to work through the problems for his glory, depending upon his word, the witness of his spirit, the consulting, consulting of other believers, work through his problems for his glory so that rejoicing comes for those who he's called. Peace. And we go back to where we were at the end of chapter 14. Paul and Barnabas reigned in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Oftentimes in the life of our church, teaching and preaching, rejoicing, dissension. We work through that for God's glory. And we get back to teaching and preaching, rejoicing when we work through it rightly. The scene plays out many times in our lives, Acts 15 does. Oftentimes we're troubled by things we need answers to. 
What I'm telling you is that for our church and for you in your life, this formula works. Seek wisdom from the word. Pray in dependence of the spirit as it dwells in you. Look to others for their opinions and understandings as Christian maturity does. Get your worship right before God. Rejoice and testify of his goodness. This is the formula that works for all of us in our lives as we seek to make decisions, as we seek to dwell together. Works for our church. Works for you. What about your own relationship? Maybe there's big decisions that you have to make in your life even now. And those things are various all over the map. We don't dare to know what you are always dealing with. If you come to us, we will encourage you. We will pray with you. And we'll take you even through this formula. What does God's word say? What is the spirit teaching us? What is right? If there's big decisions in your life, first and foremost, go to him, his word and prayer, depending upon his spirit. Seek counsel from other believers who've gone through the same things and acted in wisdom. God is not hiding from us. He's with us. But not only that, not only that, maybe you haven't come to the greatest decision in your life. Part of the problem is that you're trusting in yourself still. You're worshiping anything and everything but the one true and living God, putting that first and foremost in your life. Maybe the problem is that the biggest decision you need to make is to put Jesus Christ first, to trust in him and to him alone. Maybe that's your big decision you need to make today. And I'm here to tell you absolutely nothing is stopping you but your own sinfulness. Repent, trust in Jesus, and follow him. Give your life to him. All the decisions in life that you have to make will never bring you total satisfaction until you make that one. Until you make that one. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for who you are and what you've given us in your word. And I pray for everyone here this morning, for the believers who are here, may your spirit that dwells within them encourage them and strengthen them in the word for their life that worship will come first and you add everything else to it. Maybe there's big decisions and I know there is amongst this group that need to be made. God, I pray right now. I pray right now that you would guide them and direct them. Give them the answers they are looking for as they trust you to do what seems good in your sight. God, maybe there's that big decision that needs to be made from someone here. I believe there is. The first big decision they must make is are they going to trust in Jesus to save them from their sins or not.